Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the CX Cast. This is Sam Stern, joined as always by Jenny Wise. Hi, Jenny. Hi, everyone. We are very excited to have our colleague with us in the studio. She's usually all the way across the country in San Francisco, Kelly Price. Hi, Kelly. Hi. We wanted to talk to you about your speech at our CX San Francisco event here in October as we record this, October 2019, if you're listening to it uh, some other time, listeners. Kelly is talking about the importance of perception. And Kelly, I think you could maybe start us off by telling us why is that important and and what do we mean by perception here? Because I think that word could go in a few different directions. Perception is a core part of how we define CX here, which I'm sure has been said many times (laughs) in this room before, but customer experience is your customer's perceptions of those interactions. But like that word is very complex. And how do you actually even understand what those perceptions are? One of the key components of understanding perceptions is research, but it's not just doing research. It's how you do it that allow Mm -hmm. you to really get insight into those perceptions and kind of account for the really broad complexity of how perceptions are formed and kind of the myriad perceptions that that can exist. Is there an example that highlights the importance of perception and the power of understanding where you're coming from versus where someone else might be coming from. There's this violinist named Joshua Bell, who's like the most famous violinist in the world. And I don't know, in 2007, that doesn't matter. But he did this experiment with the Washington Post where they were interested in seeing how context shapes priorities. And so they put him in Union Station in Washington, D.C. during rush hour. And he played for 45 minutes on this violin that's worth like three and a half million dollars, some of the most like complex and beautiful music in the world. And they wanted to see if anyone would stop Mm -hmm. and listen or if everyone just would walk by. And then also before they did that, they wanted to see like what people who knew about music would say. Obviously, they have a biased perspective, which is kind of the point. But one person that they talked to was this guy named Leonora Slotkin, who at the time was the director of the Washington Symphony Orchestra. And his basic takeaway was that, you know, if he's really that good, if he's this like preeminent world musician, like people are going to notice. Like everyone should think it's Yeah. Good. He's like, there's going to be at least, like if a thousand people walk by, at least like 40 people will stop like for a few minutes and listen. And then basically I have a little bit of the video. I mean, as you probably can predict, like nobody stopped. Yeah. And that's like, so sad. yeah. <laughs> and it's not like that surprising. I think like if I even think about myself, like having studied music, I might like look at him for a few seconds, but if that's not where my frame of mind like, oh, is, is nice. Yeah, exactly. You're, no. you're not going to like step out of the context of, but anyway, it, but it shows us some important things about perception. Number one is context obviously shapes how we perceive something. This is someone who people pay hundreds of dollars to go see, mm-hmm. but then shift that context and that doesn't matter. But it also shows deeper aspects of context because there's obviously like situationally, it didn't make sense, you know, to be hearing a preeminent violinist, you know, in the subway at 9am. But also there's kind of more individual factors that would shape whether or not someone would stop. Like how much do I even like music or know about it? Or do I pay attention to what's going on around me right. just sort of in general? And then the second thing is about our own assumptions and biases, right? If we think about someone who knew a lot about music, what they anticipated was going to happen was that people would care. And a lot of times I think, you know, in organizations, we're sort of our own little mini Leonor Slotkin thinking <laughs> that it's good enough. So it'll cut through the noise because it's good enough. So basically, when you don't account for understanding your customer's context and your own assumptions and biases and the way that you're kind of making decisions, it can lead to a lot of negative outcomes. And I have some examples of things like that that happen. But basically, the way to overcome these two things, right, is to do research. But um, it's not just doing research. I think it's how you think about doing it and what it actually means to get insight into perception. And in preparation for this, I did an interview with one of the design directors at Frog and his framing of how he thinks about an insight. I kind of liked, he was like, it's a combination of what you 
see, so the things that you choose to actually look at and see about your customers, as well as what you know, which allows you to interpret things without those assumptions and biases. One of the things that I think is really interesting listening to that example is that context or the the context that the people are in will change how they perceive Mm -hmm. whatever that value is going to be, right? And so this does show that from a company perspective, you have to be thinking about the context in which you are speaking with or engaging with or creating value and experiences for those customers. It's also interesting, though, because it talks about how your perception as a company can also impact Mm -hmm. how you perceive other people will interact too. So one of the takeaways here is that companies have to change how they are interacting with or researching their users to really be able to build that empathy. Mm -hmm. You're right. There's two components to it, right? There's understanding all of the inputs that I think shape a customer's perception because a lot of times we see people miss the boat on that, just as a very simple example, a company shared with me that they had a lot of customers coming in with an expectation that they could get a mortgage for a very particular house that they assumed that they were going to be approved for, but then they would be denied, which obviously had really negative emotional <laughs> repercussions uh, for that person. And then basically through the agency they were working with, found that through exploring the journey of how they got to that point, that they were all using this mortgage calculator that was actually provided by this financial institution, but they were using it incorrectly because they didn't actually have mm-hmm. the contextual knowledge skill set to enter that information correctly to actually allow them to know what they were going to be able to afford. So that's just an example of something, right, where we don't understand all of those elements of context that then shape the perceptions that our customers have that require a much broader and holistic approach to the research that we're doing to think about what all those factors are. But you're right, we could do the best research in the world, but if it's not interpreted correctly, it's not going to matter. And so any good external research effort has to be paired with internal practices that allow us to be continuously surfacing our own assumptions and biases and allowing us to kind of shift our own perspective to try to see it through another point of view so that we're not just wasting our time doing research and then, you know, not understanding what it's really telling us. Mm -hmm. And so how do you suggest that companies do that? If I'm correct, you have some key takeaways that you'll be presenting at CX San Francisco. Can you share what some of those are? Sure. So the first is about domain expertise and kind of who you're pulling into a research and design process to make sure that you're accounting for broader factors that you might not be considering. So for example, if you're trying to understand how something is going to manifest or exist in a different culture, like what are all of those cultural variables that you need to be aware of and how are you making sure that you have an awareness of those as you're kind of planning and interpreting research is a very simple example. The second one is more about building intuition or what I would call unconscious competence sometimes uh, about customers. And this is something that happens over time and it's about kind of continuous exposure to your customers, getting to really know them as people. In the same way, if you think about it, like with people in your own life, right? The more you get to know someone, the more you can kind of interpret, you know, when someone says something to you, what that actually means or what they mm-hmm. want for their birthday or whatever it might be. And that's kind of the cadence that you want to be getting with your customers so you can start to understand them um, in that way. And there's kind of practices of continuous discovery and kind of emerging into customer realities that can be done in conjunction with but are not the research in and of itself. So you just mentioned intuition, which I think is something really interesting because we sometimes hear that come up as not a counter to doing user research, right? But people within an organization will think that they just have this understanding of their customer and that the, the act of understanding users and designing for them is just intuitive, Not that it is something that requires effort and a very specific rigor behind to 
execute and to actually learn so that you aren't just projecting your own biases, as you mentioned, onto that customer, and that it's actually an intuition and understanding of the customer due to that deep research. Mm-hmm. Are there any, I guess, best practices that you have to make sure that companies don't sort of take that step, say, well, we've talked to our customers once, now we understand exactly where they come from, and then they sort of slowly over time work their biases back in? Yeah, so I think there's a distinction between what we've learned intuition and intuition and people I think often are saying we're using our intuition. That's a good right. sign that like we're just shortcutting. They're either research. not talking to customers or they're doing it in a very superficial way. Right. Um, learned intuition is an actual kind of commitment to a practice of continuously exposing yourself to customer realities to actually prevent that challenge or that misstep of thinking that your own intuition is reflective of customers. And the other thing I'd say that's really important is that you know practices of continuous discovery or talking to customers on a regular cadence is also not a substitute for research. A lot of product teams have adopted practices of continuous discovery, you know, where they're dedicating one day a week to having customers come in. And I think that's great. And that can lead to a lot of really great answers to research questions and help spark up new ones. But that really should never be the totality of the research that you're doing. That's really one small piece that serves joint purposes of helping you get to know your customers in a more personal way so that who they are and what they need and what they want becomes much more visceral for you. But that's not going to give you, if you're thinking about kind of an end-to-end research and design process of kind of understanding how people behave and understand nuanced patterns of interaction, like that one practice is not going to be enough. So it's one piece of an overall pie that's really important, but should never be thought of as sufficient in right. and of itself. <laughs> I like that. I, important, but not sufficient yeah. in and of itself. And, and I really like that description of learned intuition, because I think it does make the case you have to continue to mm-hmm. hone this and make sure you're still calibrated appropriately to your intuition is is accurate. I mean, it reminds me kind of of if you think of yourself as a natural athlete, I don't think anyone would then say, and so I get to sit on the couch. And with learned intuition, you might be relatively intuitive for the average person, but you would never say, and therefore I don't ever need to continue practicing that and getting new inputs that help me stay intuitive. Yeah. And I think it's the same thing with, you know, actually knowing a person, right? Like if you spend a lot of time with someone, you get to know them. But then if you don't talk to them for five years, like, are they really your friend anymore? They're your friend in theory, but you don't actually know them in the same way. So this has to be ongoing. That's right. Kelly, thank you for joining us. Selfishly, since I won't be in CX San Francisco to see your your talk, I'm glad I got some of the the big themes (laughs) and and ideas from it here. Uh, And listeners, if you don't get yourself to San Francisco, you got a similar preview snapshot of Kelly's talk. Uh, We've posted some links to relevant research in the show notes, and we'll talk to you all on next week's The CX Cast. Goodbye for now. Thanks to our colleagues, Amanda Chen, for recording and mixing the episode, and Will Wilsey for editing and publishing. And listeners, if you have questions, feedback, comments, or suggestions for new episodes, please email us at cxcast at forrester.com. And remember, your customers' perceptions are your customer experience reality.